How you doing? Eddie Murphy, the funniest man in America. Once you have a man with no legs, you never go back, baby. In Trading Places, the funniest comedy of the summer. I can see! I can see! I have legs! Dan Eckert <laughs> and Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. Some very funny business. Freeze, slimeball! Moi? Trading Places, rated R. Starts Wednesday at a theater near you. Well, the holiday season is here, and it's time to start thinking about our holiday movies. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Reconsinimation. I'm your host, John Diner. I'm David Bunchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we got a big one today. And we couldn't do it without one of our all-time favorite guests returning to the show. Welcome back, Joe Setta. Oh, thanks for having me. Second straight Christmas episode. Ha <laughs> ha. Hey, nice. that's it. Yeah. Take that, other guest stars. <laughs> Christmas guy. <laughs> Listen, it's not a competition. We love you all. We love you all the same. Listen, I love Kazemple and EK Wimmer, but they can suck it. <laughs> okay. <That's laughs> right. Whoa. All right. That's the this is leading right sounds to like, Reconsent Wars. Sounds like there's a little rivalry behind uh, behind this. Brother versus brother. Probably. Not, and not appropriate uh, for what's going on in the world right now. But yeah, uh, let's good. let's have harmony. But yeah. you know what yeah. is appropriate in all areas is the movie we're covering today, Trading Places. All right, ah. classic, uh, Eight, I, the '80s classic. I'm literally it's, gonna have trouble. You're gonna hear me stutter a lot because I'm gonna always try to say Trading Spaces, uh, <laughs> and I don't mean to. So I always, you're gonna hear me take a beat when I'm saying Trading places see i just did okay. it there <laughs> this is not a, i've been trying to do that i've been trying to get through this all week it's sorry you've been practicing in the mirror you're like trading damn it places trading places damn it munching damn it <laughs> Sometimes. get it together sorry um but this movie's uh aged uh perfectly well i don't think there's any issues so uh, yeah good to go right <laughs> yeah no we, notes sure no notes wrap okay. it up let's that let's call um, it a day 10 out of 10 <laughs> Before we get into it, though, Joe, tell us what's happening on your podcast. It happened one year. Ooh, we are uh, deep in the thick of season three right now. Uh, we're we're plowing our way through 1984, and uh, and as everybody remembers, 1984 had all the best music and TV shows, and uh, a lot of fun movies, and you know, also a lot of wacky politics. So yeah, just just wander on over. And uh, this Christmas, we got a new scripted episode coming out featuring literally everyone from Reconcinimation. So hey, be sure to check it, it out. It's fun. You know, our podcasts are slowly linking. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Two galaxies swirling (laughs) at each other. The Venn diagram is almost just one big circle. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. The multiverse of podcasts are all colliding. It's all happening. I think that it's all going to build to it to a critical point. Yeah. Uh, Let's let's see what happens when when that occurs. (laughs) Hopefully 2024. Let's see. (laughs) See what we can do. So we got we got a particularly big movie from 1984 that we're looking at covering. So maybe the stars can align. We got people looking into it. There's contracts are being drawn up as we speak. Yes. Literally drawn with markers and crayons. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so Joe, I don't think you've been a part of this game, but you're completely uh invited to join 
Nope. Our new game, Six oh, Degrees yeah. of Reconsinimation. Oh. So in this game, I will ask a, I will put out another movie title that everyone will have to, by the end of the show, will have to link to trading places in as few moves as possible. Kind of like Six Degrees of, of uh, Kevin Bacon. So. Oh, okay. By, by like the actors and, and crew involved. Actors, director, yeah, however you can make a link. We're pretty lean. Okay. So. Okay. Um, I'm going to throw out there our last episode, Broadcast News. So this? connect broadcast news to trading places. The okay. clock is ticking. Tick tock, baby. Okay, so trading places. Uh, David, give us the rundown. What is happening in this movie? Well, trading it. places, uh, directed by John Landis and starring Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, and Jamie Lee Curtis, is about an over-the-top capitalist and a down-on-his-luck con artist who find themselves switching lifestyles through the manipulations of ultra-rich sociopaths who place a wager around the classic debate of nature versus nurture. And with the help of a compassionate prostitute, they may be able to turn the tide against these vicious psychopaths. So let's see, Brent, take us back in the reconsent of time capsule, bring us back to June 8th, 1983. What was happening in the world? Sure thing. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president uh music uh culture club michael jackson david bowie the police they're all super popular at the time and the let's see on tv we had things like the jeffersons magnum pi knight rider and you guys ever heard of the show allo allo hello 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 yeah what is that because it was a british it was like a british sitcom about um uh, the French Resistance during World War II sounds sounds hilarious. It ran for years. It was <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's sounds it's, like a great concept. wacky wacky Brits it's, man. It's a weird concept. Yeah, it was. It's funny. Gordon K uh, was the main guy. It was pretty good. All right, I've never seen it, but it was super popular at the time as well. One of the one of the top shows of the time. Uh, top games of the time: Space Invaders, Lunar Lander, Asteroids, and Donkey Kong. Um, Top kids show TV shows are uh, Captain Kangaroo, Schoolhouse Rock, Happy Days. Uh, you guys remember Captain Kangaroo? I feel like that's kind of creepy nowadays. But uh, I never watched remember? it. I, I always knew of it, but never watched it. Yeah, I feel like it was yeah. at the. It was. It must have been ending sort of in the eighties, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I think it was like... coming right to the end of its end of its run in the in the early eighties. But yeah, but still, that I, I like was more Howdy of a Doody Zoobly and Captain Zoo guy. Kangaroo and all that. A what a what now? A Zoobly Zoo. No, you guys didn't watch that. <laughs> I remember the theme song. Sure. I don't remember anything about yeah, Zoobly Zoo besides the song. Yeah. I Magic and Wonder is waiting a... for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were watching too much of the HR Puffin stuff if you're Zoobly Zooing. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's that was later guess. on. <laughs> uh let's see what else. Toys we had Easy Bake Oven was popular. The Snoopy Snow Cone was super popular. Ooh, Rubik's Cube and Masters of the you Universe still do. figures. Nice. Yeah. I'm making a nice ice uh Snoopy ice cream. <laughs> that shit didn't work. We bought one for our kids because they like re-released them more recently and mm-hmm. it still didn't work. They hadn't figured <laughs> oh. out how to make it work. <laughs> and uh yeah, I, I don't know. We bought it twice, once in the eighties and once in the the you know, twenty tens. I don't know. It's yeah, not great. Waste of money both times. Yeah, it was. All you got were chunks of ice. It was like, I mean, every refrigerator can give you chunk ice now. What the hell? Yeah. Snow cones. <laughs> Snow cones. 
Tasty. Comes with those tasty, right. tasty juices, though. Anyway, like that's 83, right around June 8th. Nice. Yeah, so Trading Places was has always been such a big movie. You know, in our, our generation kind of grew up with Eddie Murphy and, and Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis, all of those being such big kind of important stars uh, of our youth and, and still around today. And this was such a big one. Joe, when was the first time you saw Trading Places? I think, I think it was the movie I saw parts of for a long time, but I don't think I actually sat and watched the whole thing until maybe, I don't know, I was an adult, like probably 15, 20 years ago. I just think that it's such a, it's such an R-rated movie and such an adult movie in a lot of ways that I think as a kid, I, even though I was a big like Saturday Night Live person as a kid and a big like, I really was into Ackroyd movies and stuff, but I, I don't think I actually sat and watched it until much later. I'd seen parts of it, like him in the Santa suit. And like there's stuff that's like you remember as like iconic bits. But um, yeah, it wasn't a movie that I watched a lot as a kid. I, I, don't, I, don't, I just didn't really brush up against it, I don't think. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny what ones of these old older films kind of slip through the cracks for us and we come back to later on. That was that was me with Christmas Story. Oh, that we, yeah. we talked about last year. You can listen to it in the archives at reconsideration.com. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't see that till, you know, way after college. So no. Um, Brent, what about you? Do you catch this uh, on home video in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, or more recently? Well, I'm sure I saw it on home video in each one of those decades, but the first, <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly the first time that I, I saw it. I think similar to Joe is I caught bits and pieces of it. Uh, and then I think maybe I saw it for the first time, uh, again, one of those like uh, late night staying over at my neighbor's house, spend the night type situations where it was on HBO. Uh, but then uh that that would likely be the first time that I saw it all the way through. But I remember later on when I was a little bit older, like uh, junior high, I would go over to a buddy's house and this was like one of his favorite movies. And uh, we would watch it constantly. Like we would just put it on and do other things in the house. But like this was always on the always on the TV. It's like this and Brewster's Millions were like the two movies that we would watch like mm -hmm. constantly. Yeah. Uh, and so I always relate those two movies kind of together because that kind of, it was probably just a semester of, of school that we were just like hanging out every day after school and, and we would, you know, watch these movies and play pool and just, you know, mess around. But yeah, but yeah, that's, that's, that's where I recall it most fondly from. All right, David, how about you? Now you, this is not a first time watch for you. I can guarantee you've seen this many times. Many is a stretch, but uh, the first time <laughs> I ever seen it was, it, it, it was, probably in the last 10 years from I'm going to sit down and watch trading places. That's that. But before that, it was absolutely, is it crazy to say this was like a Saturday afternoon movie or a Sunday afternoon movie heavily yeah. sanitized? Like, cause I, Oh yeah. I feel like I've, I, I've seen so many of those scenes, like, especially like Eddie in the beginning where he, you know, he's on the, his cart and doing his shtick and yeah. And the Santa, the Santa suit stuff and the eating the salmon on the train and, so like uh, all that, but of course it's sanitized for a lot of ways. So it's like, I never saw I, the language wasn't the same. And then, you know, there's certain scenes you're not going to see on, on, you know, keep on uh, Saturday afternoon TV. So uh, yeah, it was just something that was always around. And um, I, I didn't purposely sit down to watch it until 
not you know not too long ago i guess uh, and then uh this week got to enjoy it again nice i guess so i'm i'm the one with the deepest connection to this movie because mm. this you saw was... this in theaters <laughs> nope you not were... quite <laughs> <laughs> i was three and i was you know trotting i over don't to get the it <laughs> I watched this. This was a part of my grandma collection, which was a series of films, kind of like the Criterion collection, but <laughs> of random <laughs> like movies exactly. my grandma had on tape or took me to the theater to see that ranged from Benji the Hunted to Rambo 3 to The Godfather 3 to Young Guns, all these, all sorts of crazy, and Avenging <laughs> Force. Don't forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this was on a tape. So she had all the big Eddie Murphy movies at the time. Um, it was Trading Places, 48 Hours, and Beverly Hills Cop. And I think Beverly Hills Cop and Trading Places were on the same tape. So I would, you know, we watched those kind of all the time, definitely around the holiday season. And then when I got into high school and started collecting VHS, this was one of the first ones that I bought. Me and my buddy Eamon, we would watch all the, you know, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy movies, Dan Aykroyd movies. That was like yeah. when we got home from school, that's where we're popping in. So I've seen this movie many, many times. And uh, yeah, and I don't know, it's it's aged in such an interesting way. Uh, but I still always have a fo- I'll always have a fondness for it just because it was a movie that I used to watch with my grandma. So regardless of content sometimes uh i still I, i'll still always say i like it but it right. does not uh isn't necessarily appropriate anymore but um so what what do you guys think this movie's like legacy is when when we think trading places is it a movie people still talk about today is it still kind of come up around whether it's as a holiday movie or not or Eddie murphy movies or is it still talked about at all what do you think I think uh, well, I think it's always in the conversation when you talk about like you comedies, do? 80s comedies. I think it's I don't think it's like the first, but I don't you know, it's it's Eddie and Aykroyd. And uh, I think it's lower down on the list of like discussing that era. But I, I don't know. I, I, it okay. always shows up on list. I think that's that's a fair point. If you're sitting around with a bunch of 40 something talking about 80s comedies and and the history of eddie murphy like i definitely agree that it's it's on the list and going to be talked about for sure so i i agree with that completely but i don't know about common audience like you know modern audiences and things like that like i don't think i don't think it gets the respect it deserves because of some of the i mean you know like john landis doesn't get talked about that much anymore uh you know eddie murphy um he's not nearly the star he was in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think he started to do some stuff in, in animation that got him popular again for a while, but like he, he doesn't have that same kind of star star power. Same with Dan Aykroyd. Jamie Lee Curtis is probably the one that I think gets the most recognition these days. She just won an Oscar. yeah, Yeah. You know, so, so, which is, which to me is, you know, I mean, she's fantastic. So, and she deserved, you know, she was great in that. Yeah. She she was great. I'm glad she won the Oscar, you know, but I don't think beyond that, like, even when you talk about her winning the Oscar, you know, like, I don't think people are necessarily equating her career to trading places, even though if 
to David's point, you were sitting with people, you know, talking about the study of film and things like that. Like this movie very much was a springboard for her success mm. and for oh, her yeah. to get, get out of kind of being sort of like pigeonholed into a, into a specific typecast situation with being the scream queen and all that. And now, you know, this was the first thing that I think she really got a chance to show her true like acting chops and, and gained her, you know, recognition to do more. So I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to, let's, let's talk more Jamie Lee for sure. Let's, we're going to really get into what was going on with her how she got this role and, and exactly what you just said, where, what happened afterwards. And um, surprisingly the Ralph Bellamy fan club has been very quiet lately. <laughs> you know, every holiday yeah. season, I expect them to kind of, I think that really is the thing with the movie now, though, is that it does go so in on being a Christmas movie where I don't remember growing up ever thinking of this thing as a Christmas movie. But then, like, that wasn't a debate we had back then. That wasn't a thing where they're just pigeonholing movies into being Christmas movies, mm -hmm. whether they unless they were really obviously natural Christmas movies. So I think that might be the thing it actually gets it talked about more nowadays but mm -hmm. now part of this could also be that again i had kind of a separation from this movie for a long time and I, I didn't really even equate it in with like even kind of lesser Aykroyd movies from the time i don't know why but you know i i just i never really thought of it i think it was really just because it comes right before ghostbusters it comes right before beverly hills cop and so it feels kind of like a junior movie for them in a lot of ways um but I think that that might be the thing now where that is the thing that actually gets it sort of uh, in conversations more often is the, the Christmas aspect to it. Well, um, that's become such a like a kind of corner of the business is the, the holiday movies, the Christmas movies and and taking some of these older ones, because this movie did. I mean, it, it is it's all set around Christmas and New Year's. So, like, let's just say the month of December. Right. Mm -hmm. But only a real short sequence of the movie is actually Christmas heavy. Right. So, but yeah, it does get kind of, it, it morphed from like an Eddie Murphy, an Eddie Murphy movie to a holiday movie. Right. And I mean, that's the thing not to keep getting, it seems like, it seems like when I'm on, we have this conversation more and I don't know why, because, you know, I'm not, we're not really doing those kind of movies, but like, I don't think of this as a Christmas movie, mainly because... I, because Christmas is wow. such a small part of it and there's no reason like except for him in the Santa suit which is a great kind of visual moment there's not really they could set this at any time of the year and it'd be the exact same movie so like, yeah. I don't even know it has any bearing Die Hard is certainly more of a Christmas movie and I don't think Die Hard's a Christmas movie either so yeah. it's like that's Whoa. just my Oof. my thing with this you know so we're just so gonna have the Die Hard I, argument every time. I don't want to disagree. keep having it I, I'm I, just saying I, like that's my idea with it is like you could watch I, this movie at any time of the year and it's the exact same movie like yeah, I, that's I agree that Die Hard is more of a Christmas movie and that this does not feel like much of a, a, a Christmas movie right. to me at all but but yeah I, it's it's interesting because uh, to your I mean I never even equated this to Christmas actually the last time we spoke about it when we were talking about doing this and preparing for it, I was like, wait, is this a, I've, is there even anything in here that, that is related to Christmas? Like I couldn't well, remember any of it. Thematically. Yeah. No, not at all. Really. Like there's nothing. I mean, him in a Santa suit. That's it. Right. Exactly. Like there's, there's what 15, 20 minutes of the movie that is really, I mean, if you watch closely, like the Christmas set dressing is there throughout. So it, it is kind of a, 
presence, but it's not about Christmas at all. Like Die Hard is about a family trying to unite at Christmas time. Oh my so God. That, <laughs> and that makes it a Christmas movie. Comparing both right of discussing what, families together. Discussing whether yeah. which one of these is closer to being a Christmas movie is like saying, is a Krispy Kreme donut and a, or a cheeseburger more like pasta? Like there's none of <laughs> none of these things fit. Like <laughs> which one's more like lasagna? <laughs> you get a measurable a amount Depot, of carbs. It all, it's all there. A Home Depot location. Well, it's or... clear it's Krispy Kreme. That's <laughs> the answer is right in front of you. This, this is ridiculous. You guys are ridiculous. Uh, also, Joe, you're on the Christmas episodes. We're going to be talking about what makes a Christmas. I know, movie. but this is only—it's yeah. only like the, I don't know why. It seems like we've talked about this in other episodes, and I don't know. Did this come up during UHF? Probably. Why? It had to. I don't think there was a Christmas to. moment. I think in the always comes up. Yeah. Is UHF a Christmas movie? The debate continues. <laughs> Might as well be. <laughs> oh boy. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, no, thematically, like there's there's nothing plot wise. It's really just visually, you know, set dressing and wardrobe that that make this uh, a holiday film. So um, but, you know, there, there's so much that is uh, when I think of this movie now, I really think about how kind of poorly it's aged in, in a lot of ways. I mean, there are there's definitely still some funny bits. There's funny Eddie Murphy, you know, things going on in here, performance-wise, really strong from everybody. It's just that there's there's a lot of racism and unnecessary nudity that's world famous and, you know, sexism. And it's really, it's hard to watch and it feels very problematic in 2023. Yeah. Which I mean, high school I... me is punching me in the face right now because <laughs> it's hilarious to him. Sure. I I do have an entire I have a whole chart to get into about all of the problematic areas of this Ooh. movie. So I don't know when you want to like start to tackle that, but let's go. Let's talk it. Let's let's just talk about the elephant in the room with with that stuff, and then we can talk more about you know, okay. the cast and the making of. All right, so let's just start with races. <laughs> so fellas, let's get into it with all races. Right. Okay, let's do it. Uh, I think this movie isn't nearly as racist as it is homophobic and sexist, but it is still a pretty racist movie. I mean because of the blackface sequence. If it's not for that, you have racist characters, but racist characters serve a purpose in this movie. And like yeah. that, I think is actually a valuable plot thing to have. Whether the Duke brothers are really racist, really helps like you hate these characters and mm -hmm. build you towards the ending. So that I don't really have so much of a problem with. It's the whole train sequence, which I don't know if there's a conversation to be had about why any of that's in this movie, but like that part, is so bad in just like in the movie and just in the construction of it that without it, I think this movie actually is probably more palatable to an, a modern audience, like that entire mm -hmm. sequence. Um, and so that's that was what I had is that uh, racist kind of and so the characters, yes, but then the blackface, so it all kind of evens out racist wise compared to say the homophobic aspects of the movie or yeah. the sexist parts of the movie. Dan Aykroyd really hasn't taken any heat for that blackface. No, yeah. I, I, it's weird. Like, I, obviously, the blackface is racist, especially by today's standards. It would never, ever be done. But I also don't feel like it was done in like a malicious sort of with the malicious intent, you know, which doesn't justify it or make it okay. But it's like, it doesn't feel um, like it's 
based on like hatred or or uh, any anything like that i feel like the more racist stuff is kind of the the class system within like you know all the dukes staff are are black and you know like just the different like class systems of of the of the groups of people within the movie i think are more like offensively racist than than really the blackface thing is which sounds strange because on on the surface the blackface seems like the most racist thing for sure but i i think it's like i think it's the less obvious racism that today like sticks out to me more more apparently and i'm like oh man that's just like you know i don't you know that that struck me more as kind of like more unsettling i just think that like that stuff is like character choices that actually benefit the movie like i I get your point like it is like more subtly racist because it's supposed to just be like this is this accepted thing but i think because because eddie murphy's in the movie and i think this originally wasn't this supposed to be like a was this a belushi movie no it was uh it was originally for gene wilder and richard pryor oh Oh. So then, I knew that like there was Richard some other Pryor construction lit himself of it, yeah. on fire and, and uh, <laughs> that put an end to that. That, that, yeah. that stopped that. But I think if if um, Valentine had been a white actor, then the rest of this would, yes, the rest of this would be, this is just sort of rich people racism and it wouldn't really work. But because of the way the plot kind of progresses and they're, you know, building him up and he'd be, he's so unnatural in this. And why would we, having this guy be, uh, you know, in this role... And then the kind of comeuppance and the whole thing with the ending that I think it all serves a purpose. It's a harsh purpose for a comedy for sure, but I still don't find it accidental where I think doing blackface in the eighties is now accidentally a really offensive thing where at the time you would see that in sort of a lot of places. So. Sure. I, I, I guess also for me, like what, you know, in, in that scene, the the blackface scene you also have Eddie Murphy who's playing the this African prince which is also gratuitously yeah. like offensive you know by today's standards you know so like the whole scene is kind of insensitive right yeah. you know and 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 miss by today's standards again totally misplaced um they're they're all playing stereotypes, all of them. You got a drunk well, right, Irish priest, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, and, then the, and a Swedish person who she's getting it wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> Austrian slash Swedish and getting it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's I mean, the whole, it's the whole thing on the train. It's the entire yeah. train sequence has some problem in every part of it, right? And it feels so crammed in and so not a part of the movie that I'm like. I, I really just don't understand why any of that's there when you only need the one, they just need to like, Oh, we got to stick it to the bad guy. Like, yeah, I guess another I just, way to do that. Right. I guess just going back to my initial point, like the reason it feels less racist I, and this is just my own. The whole thing is so belligerently like out of control in every aspect like every single one of them is playing a stereotype of some sort that like in in the in the mix of it all like it just seems to fit in with what's happening with every character in that scene like it doesn't stick out to me as as much you know but but you're right like i get it like yeah like blackface is not okay like we've 
you know, like, there's there's not a place for it. There's no debate yeah. there. Yeah. Unless it's well, Tropic and, Thunder, which I still think is okay. I don't know. Like somehow that does work. Like, well, that, like that, why is that like why why are we okay with you know, like yeah. in yeah. general, like people seem to be totally okay with it in Tropic Thunder, but but everywhere else, like it, it's not okay. Because it's me in Tropic Thunder, it's making fun of Hollywood. Yeah. And Hollywood's portrayal of blackface. Like it, there's a there is a difference and I'm not defending it either. I'm just saying there, there's no, a difference. No, it's just interesting. Between, it's like it's yeah. weird, right? Like yeah. it's like who gets a pass and who doesn't. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, um well, I I I see I see what you're saying, Brian. It's just, you know, in a lot, a lot of times it's contextual in terms of like if you're like uh if 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 you could boil if someone boils you down from being a person from Texas down to a couple like stereotypes and you might think sure. it's hysterical but like some people don't like to be put, put in a box and then uh it comes i think it comes from that that place to start but then going to using the culture of a like an entirely different race as sort of a caricature cartoon he's got a funny voice and a funny look and he and, and all that and using it as a cartoon like that that's where the problem comes right i guess we all know that but there there, there does seem to be like because the I get what you're saying, though. All these characters are so over the top. It's almost like, well, there's actual racist characters in the movie, and mm -hmm. we're going to, like, sort of play up, play it up. Like, we're going to ramp it up, and we're all going to talk a little funny, and, and we're going to have fun doing it. In like, to, to point out, like, none of this works, I think. Like, I almost think, like, because how stupid would this guy who, like, how stupid do they think he is? Like, he wouldn't recognize any of them because yeah. he, being the guy who he is, who had direct contact with at least two of them in the past, like, and would know, like, he's not, he doesn't figure it out until he sees the swap or, I mean, I don't know. And yeah, it's, it's just sort of like this whole scene's ridiculous. Is it effective? Probably not. Is, yeah. is the intention there? I'm only speculating. Um, do we need to see it? No. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a big failure uh, as time goes on that, you know, again, and Dan Aykroyd in blackface is probably the, is uh it's it's kind of worse than a white person just doing another kind of white culture but it's all bad i'm not none of it's permissive i think well and i think it just it's compounded because it becomes like really the story is a, a kind of a mix of pygmalion and the the prince and the pauper right of a wealthy person and a and a a person that's down and out kind of switching roles and and there's more nuance to it obviously but there's so much, you know, in just the casting of Eddie Murphy as Valentine brings race into the equation. And then obviously that was very much leaned into with the Duke brothers. And just like you said, Joe, to make them seem, seem much more villainous that like it's obvious racism, but it's throughout the movie and it kind of doesn't really ever go away. It keeps right. coming up because they'll drop even even uh, Dan Aykroyd's Winthorpe is is racist in the beginning. You know, when he just because he bumps into Valentine, he assumes Valentine is trying to steal all the payroll. And, you know, they drop, you know, various versions of the N word multiple times throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's something that is just a constant throughout the movie. And it's not something that's like comes up and then goes away and we move on it's just kind of always there yeah uh, but no I, I you know i do think i don't think 
to come back to the train stuff, I don't think it's maliciously mean. And and again, to bring up the the best example of this is always Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is the meanest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) most racist thing of all time. And nobody talks about it because they're like, oh, but it's fun. And she's got a cat. But I think that, you know, I think the other choices in the movie I don't have as much a problem with because it does feel character driven and actually adds towards something. It mm-hmm. makes you feel differently about those characters. If they're just rich guys making this bet, you could treat it as a very fun thing, even though, cause like, you know, who really suffers in the beginning? It's Winthorpe who you already aren't supposed to like. Right. And then like, as it starts to go along, you're kind of like, well, then why are we going through all of this? And you're like, Oh, but these guys are really shitty, you know? And like, that's from the things they're saying. So I, I think that actually works effectively. But again, to the same point, it's pretty harsh for what's otherwise a pretty light comedy, you know, from the eighties to have these yeah. elements in it. But I think that that's having Eddie Murphy in it. So it's interesting. Cause it's a movie that's riddled with both like intentional and unintentional racism. Right? Yeah. Like, like, and you're just like, Hmm, how do you split the difference there? Like, what? <laughs> but yet it, people still talk about it. And it's still, again, like we said, earlier, you know, earlier, it's in the pantheon of, of, 80s comedy movies, you know, when when you talk about that group, this one's usually at the top. Going going back to that uh, train sequence, one other thing that doesn't involve race, although there is, I was worried, I forgot about the gorilla suit uh, situation. <laughs> oh, that, boy. Oh this my time God. I was like, oh my God, is there something really horrible race, you know, racially with that? There wasn't, but they do present rape as f- being funny. Yeah, which was yeah. another yeah. 80s rape. thing. Like yeah. rape, rape is comedy material. Yeah, yeah. when it's a gorilla too. raping a man, right? Like that's <laughs> it's funny. That's though. okay. That's a pass. <laughs> and there was at least a couple of times about going to jail. It means yeah, you're going to get raped in jail. Yeah. That which yeah. is a which is the easiest quote yeah, unquote easiest joke you can make about like being arrested in a Hollywood movie. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's standard I mean, '80s low hanging fruit comedy, right there. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's the other thing I had as in part of the chart is how homophobic is this movie and the movie a little, but I think we always give Eddie Murphy such a pass when his like half of his comedy in the eighties is based on just gay jokes. Like, and everybody's just kind of cool with that. But like, so I've got the movie as like, "Eh, it's like three out of 10 on homophobic, but Eddie straight up is a homophobic comic. And for whatever reason, that's not something that comes up, but like, Look at Raw. Look at Delirious. Oh, yeah. like it's, this is all he did. Like this was his thing. So, I I don't get that. And like, and the, his gay jokes in this aren't part of anything. They're just thrown in as like silly punchlines. Yeah, just and like one offs. Like, yeah, and I'm just like like riffs on his on his standup. Yeah, and yep. it's just so it is just this cheap, you know, low hanging fruit type comedy. And I, I just you know yeah maybe at the time nobody cared, but it just it feels out of place and it feels strange, you know, in this movie even with Eddie still not exactly playing characters, just kind of playing Eddie Murphy. So it was hard to watch it this time and not, and like try to look past all that stuff. Cause it's just present all the time, whether it's the racism, the homophobia, the, you know, um, the sexual stuff or the nudity for no reason. Yeah. And as a kid, you know, you're like, Oh great. This movie's like, this is a must watch. But now it's like the girls at the party that, you know, and when Valentine has like his crowd come over for what I think it's his first or second night in Winthorpe's house that he throws this kind of wild party and girls just taking their shirts off and running around waiting in bed for him for, you know, 
all that happening for with really no motivation or anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was some clever racism in the movie that I, I caught when, um, uh, who's the John Gleason's character? Paul Gleason. Uh, or Paul Gleason's character. So yeah. when he calls after he got the, he, uh, he got the stats or whatever, and he said, Operation Strange Fruit is a go. And Strange Fruit is that Billie Holiday song that was popularized based on that, like a book or a poem um, that's essentially about lynching and hanging black people from trees. Yeah. And it, and that, and his mission isn't, has nothing to do with like racism on it. It's just about this manipulation of the market. But he said, Operation Strange Fruit is good. And I was like, oh, you're like, that's it, another pointing out of like every white rich. Power, every white powerful person in the movie is a racist kind of thing no. um i didn't catch that i never caught that before but um because wow. it's just yeah. if you think about i mean I, I i can't believe that would be unintentional <laughs> like, no, you don't hear that phrase be. related to anything else yeah yeah <laughs> that's yeah. not a phrase that just gets thrown out there so yeah mm -hmm. so like but it was it was quick it was quickly done and it wasn't and it had nothing to do with like the action or, or the other characters on the on the screen but it was this nice another subtle like uh, exclamation point uh, about like who's who is a racist and who you know who's got the power and uh yeah i just found that i found that kind of a smart little play to to make mm -hmm. to to do that um so i just want to point just add that to the pile still making villains seem villainous yeah 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 it's it's a it like you said it's it's more of a tool than um yeah. you know it's not played for a laugh like yeah uh or anything like that cuz that's the thing all the racism none of None of the overt reasons other than the train is like played for laughs. It's just showing people being like really shitty and a lot of hard R's uh, N words in this. Or not a lot, but a, a one or two. There's right? like three or four. That's three or four. Enough. And then Negro as well. To Again, it's just every everything to push push someone down below and even further down below from their from their status. Um, this this othering of of a human being, and I think that's that's kind of the key to to racism of of like, what's what's your intent? So yeah, did they all the, the did they all on the train have intent to like other all these kind of stereotypes, or do they want to play it up for laughs? They did, but yeah. every but all the serious racism is a uh, um, applies to these these racists. <laughs> like it's yeah. it's just to demonstrate who they are. The other ism, back to sexism. Mm. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that this movie is most famous for, and many clips and whatever websites, are uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis nude scenes, which are yeah. completely unnecessary. They're not, there's no reason she had to take her top off. No. And I don't know where. Because she generally, from what I saw, generally had good, you know, favorable things to say about this movie and about um, John Landis. So I don't know where, in my mind, I'm picturing it coming from Landis that, oh, you got to do this. You, you got to, like, you just got to do it. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it came from somebody else. I can't see her suggesting doing that. <laughs> That it somehow adds to her character. Should I take yeah. my top off? <laughs> what do you think? Do you think would that be good here? Yeah. Can I bring these babies out? What do you think? <laughs> oh, maybe that's a good idea, Jamie. Let's we could use a little spice in this scene. Have you considered these though? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, those would those would work. Yeah. I don't think the scene's working. What if I take my top off? <laughs> yeah. So it's just you know, 
as memorable of a moment that is, it's really like so. It, it's also hard to watch that, yeah. in a way today. Well, yeah. so the final part of the chart is sexist, and uh, yeah, it, it, that's basically what it was. It's just that there's a lot of nudity, but and it's unnecessary. But it is pretty typical of comedies in the '80s, yeah. mm-hmm. and so it doesn't feel that you know outlandish. But it's also that there's no women characters in this movie that have anything like. There's not that many women characters to begin with, but they're all horrible. And then she's a prostitute and she's the one we're supposed to like, right. you know, empathize. And you do like she because Jimmy the Curtis is great. So like it does work, but she's still a prostitute. Like they're still already beating her down just as it, being in the movie, you know, like yeah. because even really her being a prostitute doesn't add all that much to the plot. Like it kind of makes sense with how they first like she gets involved in all of this. Right. But it's it's kind of necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I've because got she's a prostitute being... that's th- that's portrayed totally differently than other prostitutes, even of the 80s. Like, yeah, she's yeah. independent. She doesn't have a pimp. You know, she's yeah. in charge of herself. She's healthy. She's not on drugs. You know, she has her own apartment in a, you know, shitty part of town. But still, she's got her own place and she's responsible. So very much, you know, it, it's very easy to like her and kind yeah. of forget that that's her chosen career yeah well it's in but, this this movie keeps trying to like upend your expectations right so the yeah the prostitute with the heart of gold is a classic uh <laughs> yeah. classic thing you can use and uh and she's the one that that shows mercy to the the rich guy who has fallen to his lowest point uh like without her I, what would have happened <laughs> So, but it's also that her lo- his yeah. lowest point is her life, and like she's yeah, the only yeah. female character that has anything. Like, oh yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, ultimately, yeah. it's like a means to an end, right? Like, I mean, because she's gonna, she's gonna kind of use him to get out of her funk, right? Well, yeah, because she had a, she had a business, she has a business plan or whatever to retire from being yeah. a prostitute and yeah. probably you know start her own real business or something like. Uh, and so yeah, now he's a quick. Now he can pay pay her for helping him uh she demands it right she's like there's not no negotiation i'll help you and you give me the big bills yeah uh so well, which is she's, smart and she's she says later she's protecting her investment that winthorpe yeah. is her investment her ticket out of you know her her life status so um there's also uh the famous party scene where a lot of people a lot of women who wear athletic gear all the time mm-hmm. i guess go to go hang out at the bars and then go to parties wait wait wait, wait. are you saying you don't wear athletic gear to the bars i, <laughs> I do. mean so, apparently in philly that's a thing i mean <laughs> definitely in philly yeah like they're know. wearing they're wearing the tights uh the, all the tights and then the women take you know they're part they're just dancing and pres- presumably really drunk and then pres- maybe high but then it's just like take your tops off because that's the most comfortable way to have a party yeah. in front of a bunch of people just taking your tops off. So. Yep. Uh, uh, minus the take your tops off part, I think if you do go to bars or specifically like sports bars and stuff like that, you're going to see many many people, both men and women, dressed in dressed in athleisure gear. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I don't think it's that far of a reach, although it does seem out of place because the '80s look of athletic gear is. <laughs> kind of funny within itself at this point i think but, that's what it is yeah i guess yeah, yeah they, they look like they came from an aerobics video so it's like yeah but i but guess I mean, that's like, probably less that's probably more common than than it i mean it, where are you gonna uh, like you're gonna go anywhere you're gonna see you're gonna see guys in gym shorts girls in like yoga pants like i mean it's like it, sure sure 
which is not too far removed from what what that what that is that's a good point yeah so you know clearly there's a lot of issues and i did want to talk about that up front that sexism racism for sure you know all of that stuff is leading to very problematic moments kind of throughout the movie but i want to also talk about some of the good movie stuff rules. of this movie, movie. Rules. too late we already said this movie is just a shit fest john you buried the lead nobody's gonna listen this far and be like oh yeah they liked it well i think you know what what works so strongly in this I mean, it has to be the cast. I mean, the, yeah, the sure. cast top to bottom is fantastic all for, you know, what their roles are. I mean, the Duke brothers, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy are perfectly cast in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And they're memorable, you know, 80s villains. They've given this genetics fellow the Nobel Prize. A man doesn't know the first thing about human nature. Ah, Randolph, we're about to make millions of dollars in frozen orange juice, and you're talking to me about human nature. Money isn't everything, Mortimer. Oh, grow up. Mother always said you were greedy. She meant it as a compliment. They're very charming. They're very, like, they're, like, you, yeah, it's the, st- the star power, essentially, of each of, of, like, the main cast of this is... Is undeniable. Don Amici, uh, funny little fun fact. So that guy typically in in any of his roles was always the good guy. This is the one and only time in any of his movies he ever used the word fuck. Oh wow. Well he gets first first and only. Yep. And he apologized to the crew. He was so upset about having to use uh, numerous, you know, scenes with that kind of language because he's yeah. the one who says the n-word as well that yeah. he went around to the crew and apologized to everybody before they shot the scene because he was so uncomfortable about shooting it yeah. it is and don amici's and and sorry ralph bellamy too was had also pretty much always been a you know a, a hero or a good guy in his films and um they uh it was really you know perfect casting in that sense that they're taking two recognizable faces uh, that are good guys usually, and then making them the villains. It's, you know, we've seen that a couple of times throughout film history, but this was, this is a great use of it. And Don Amici was like out pretty much out of the business by this point. And Mm -hmm. John Landis had to like call the, you know, the operator and track down like a, a, and a D Amici that lived in Santa Monica. (laughs) This actually, this actually would be used as a springboard for his, basically the second half of his career. Yeah. Uh, He he got nominated for an Academy award for what movie boys and girls cocoon. He won, uh, he won that Oscar Don Amici. Yeah. 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 So you could draw a direct line from trading, (laughs) trading places to cocoons Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. Here on cocoon corner. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> You're talking a little cocoon again. <laughs> we do it every episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, Don Amici, they thought they actually thought he was dead because he had pretty much <laughs> vanished for the, for like, really, I think more than 10 years and nobody knew where he was. And I think it was like a casting assistant who finally said, no, no, no. He's like, I see him at this coffee shop in Santa Monica every so often. So <laughs> he's alive. And then that's when Landis had to, kind of just track them down and they just, and, they just uh, hung out at the coffee shop. They're like, we're going to wait 
for Don. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's a meet you watch. Yeah. yeah, a meet you watch. <laughs> Nineteen eighty-three. <laughs> when, well, the first time you ever heard about Donna Michi, though, and you didn't have a face to put to it, did you think it was a woman named Donna Michi? Because that, when I was a child, <laughs> Donna Michi, like Donna Meagle, a, yeah. When I was a when I was a little kid, and you, and you, you know, whatever, watching whatever TV show or movie, and they mentioned Donna Michi, I'm like, who's Donna Michi? And I didn't know. It, it <laughs> took took a little bit to get there. <laughs> Then somebody just opens our studio door and it's this woman. I'm Donna Michi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, hey, Donna. <laughs> and nobody uh, else? No? Okay, never mind. Yeah. Someone listening that. to this will will absolutely agree with me. Someone. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but not with Donna Michi. But I but I uh, there are other names that I've worked with or or, or heard where it's like is you know, yeah. like it it could be confused. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Oh, no lie. My grandmother thought, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. My grandmother thought Barack Obama was Rock Obama, and he was just an Italian guy named Rocco. That's true. Rock, Rock <laughs> right. Obama? Rock Obama, yeah. She hey, thought Rocco. he was like Rocco. Oh, Rocco. And that was my grandma really, really thought that. Yeah. Oh, I almost just did a spit take here. <laughs> it was your grandmother? Is that why she voted for Barack Obama? <laughs> I think it's probably the only reason. Yeah. Well, that's, that's she was like, of that generation. So. That's like that famous Irish football player, Frank O'Harris, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, Frank, Frank O'Harris. Frank O'Harris. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my I god! I voted for right. that nice, that nice Italian boy, Rocco, Rocco Obama. I'm going Obama. for Rocco. See? Yeah. She was Where's from West Side. Did out. she have yeah. those T-shirts made up? Rooting for Rocco. <laughs> Rooting for Rocco. Yeah, yeah. She got a big contingent of the of the blue hairs to uh, to come out in West Side, two thousand eight. Yeah. <laughs> all the all the cocoonies were there together. Just, uh... <laughs> the cocoonies. Yeah. The cocoonies are good enough. That was. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Cindy. Sorry, Lover. Mama. Mama Seta. We we're just we're just messing. <laughs> uh, and i'm crying uh, oh my God. trading places <laughs> oh back to trading places <laughs> all right let's let's uh let's talk about casting we we mentioned that this was originally for written or conceived for gene wilder and richard pryor uh, as mentioned, Richard Pryor, let's call him unavailable for this after such <laughs> a good incident. Unavailable. <laughs> uh, well, let's, can, uh, we, so, can, can we, can you refresh my memory? How exactly did he set himself on fire? He can went we, on a wild cocaine binge and somehow yeah. ended up himself on fire. I think he was freebasing yeah. and he lit himself yeah. on fire. Yeah. 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 Like poured gasoline on himself and lit himself on fire. Oh, wow. Like that. Like straight yeah. up. Tried to okay, Oof. yeah. Where was, was this? Uh, what, David? No, go ahead. Nope. <laughs> cool. So, but yeah. So not available for this. We'll call him. And the, uh, so John Landis thing, comes on. The, what's that? I'm sorry. I'm just saying this would have been a pretty good Gene Wilder Richard Pryor movie, right? I was just gonna say yeah. it would be freaking awesome. That would have been actually. a great movie because I mean, Silver Streak is really a fun movie. Again, a little racist, but like still a really good movie. And uh, and what was the the second uh, stir crazy stir crazy stir crazy. crazy and then what they do see no evil see no evil hear no evil so yeah. and then there was there was another one that wasn't any good um, 
Well, yeah, that's my question. When, where in their team ups, where would this have been? This would have been ups? after Stir Crazy. Yeah, this so would like, have been the third one. Yeah, okay. Silver Streak, I think, is like seventy seven, and Stir Crazy is maybe seventy nine. Yeah, I think I like think that. you're right. Yeah, but yeah, I could yeah. see that. This would have that would have been a pretty good movie. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely would have. But uh, John Landis comes on the project, uh, brought on by Paramount, who is kind of. Let's talk about Landis too, and then we'll kind of switch back to the rest of the cast. But Landis was like the comedy golden boy of this of this time period. You know, he'd done yeah. Animal House, which was a huge movie. Blues Brothers, big. It got bigger later on. It wasn't the blockbuster I think that they wanted it to be, but it was still pretty big. Yeah, it became a cult classic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, so he's well-loved, uh, especially by Paramount at this time. However, he has filmed his famous sequence of the Twilight Zone movie at this point. The movie has not come out, but as this Trading Places is starting up, he has shot his, uh, you know, his sequence, his quarter of that film, which was directed by uh, four different directors, each yeah. directing a segment. Sorry, and John. Sorry, real quick. So he, so by the time Trading Places came out, he had already filmed that, but when he was filming Trading Places, had he filmed? Yes. Like so, so as this is being filmed, like the Twilight Zone stuff's already in the past. Twilight Zone stuff's already happened, but okay. he's the trial has not happened. I think that doesn't happen till like 1984, 85. But he has actually filmed at the incident with unfortunately, you know, three yeah. three people tragically being killed on Landis's watch when he killed uh, the, Vic Morrow when, when John Landis kids. killed Vic Morrow yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when, when he, and two children yes. we yeah, don't have to be children. passive about this yeah <laughs> which is like yeah. the quintessential what not to do breaking every safety you know law on, yeah. on set or just in common common sense yeah yeah but he, yeah, so that incident's happened and he hasn't, but but the world isn't really fully aware of all the details yet, so. So his plans to kill Ralph Bellamy also go out the window because he's like, yeah, well, I can't, well, I can't get away with it twice. They're gonna catch me. <laughs> they're gonna catch me. <laughs> he, he had a helicopter sequence plan. <laughs> what an asshole. Oh, God. Why is Jamie Lee Curtis getting into a helicopter instead of a taxi cab? <laughs> Why doesn't she have her shirt on? What is this? <laughs> Topless helicopter rides. That's That was her original job. <laughs> Let's just make her a prostitute. It's easier to explain. <laughs> she was originally a helicopter pilot who took her top off when she gave you yeah. a tour around the city. Yeah, just flying around the island. Oh, look, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. This is, takes place in Philadelphia, though. So. Oh, right. You know, no island in Philadelphia. No yeah. islands there. Yeah. Just go see the Delaware Water Gap and go home. That's it. <laughs> yeah. so it's wonderful. really short. There's not yeah. a lot. There's the Betsy Ross Bridge over there. <laughs> yeah, the Ben. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So Landis brings up, now the prior's out, brings up, you know, the next kind of hot commodity, which is Eddie Murphy, who's a, a star very much on the rise at this point. He has done 48 hours also for paramount that was we talked about it here check it out in the archives that really put him on the map he took him from very quickly a very young stand-up comic to a the star of saturday night live who almost single-handedly you know rescued that show from cancellation and became the centerpiece of it for i think three seasons um three, three or three. four yeah yeah or more yeah but uh and then 
is looking for his next project. So gets brought into this and that's probably, you know, the best move that was made here was bringing Eddie in because all of his star power, Eddie Murphy would eventually become arguably the biggest star of the 1980s. Mm. Oh yeah. I think that's, Absolutely. yeah. And this is like step two or three, really, if you count Saturday Night Live in that uh, momentum. But Dan Aykroyd, uh, the studio did not want at all. Uh, they just saw him as a, you know, kind of not second fiddle, but a partner of Belushi. And their his last two films both bombed, Neighbors, which co-starred Belushi, and then Dr. Detroit, Joe, I know that's a favorite of yours. I do enjoy Dr. Detroit. <laughs> it's so crazy. It's such a crazy it is. movie. Yeah. It really is. But it was a box office failure. So they didn't see him as, you know, leading man material, but this is also a team up. Landis had worked with him multiple times and went way back with him and really went to bat and uh was adamant that that Ackroyd be in it. Ackroyd took a pay cut, and I guess that was enough for the studio to uh give him a shot. So but it was fun. It was funny because I wrote this down because like thinking about Aykroyd's film like work, like you take Ghostbusters out of it, like parts where he's like has any sort of dynamism in the in the parts. And I really only have like a couple things. I was like really like favorite Aykroyd's. And like I think this movie, I think, is a really good showcase for him because he does have that like he plays really good, like snooty rich people. But he also gets to play a scumbag for like a good stretch of it. And that's like his SNL bread and butter was when he played just like monsters. And I always think that, but there's not a lot of movies that have that. Like he doesn't really do that on, in, in films too, too often. So. Yeah. Well, and he gets Um, to, he gets to have like a full arc. You know what I mean? Like he, there's a lot of range to the character within, within the context of the movie. So I think it is a really good platform for him. And I think it explains like why afterwards along with, I mean, all of these actors that were in it, like went on from here to, really start hitting it big but yeah. i mean Ackroyd again you know like his next thing i think after this is ghostbusters yes yeah. and you know i mean there you go like yeah. yeah so and he's so good as winthorpe here that snooty yeah. rich guy and that haircut that perfect haircut for <laughs> for that, character. that white guy haircut yeah. yeah it was a dream i dreamt the whole thing it was just a bad dream Good morning, sir. Merry Christmas. Coleman, I've had the most absurd nightmare. I was poor and no one liked me. I lost my job. I lost my house. Penelope hated me. I I, 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 I grew up with that haircut. <laughs> my hair. <laughs> you were Winthorpe. My hair still naturally parts right here and down the side. Like, uh, if I don't do anything to it, it's, uh, I recognize that haircut. It's awful. (laughs) (laughs) But he's just so snobby, you know, when we first see him, that first, you know, act of the movie that uh, until the switcheroo is made, just, oh my God, it's, it's, it's actually kind of hard to watch, but he's, and he's just like a junior version of the Dukes. You know, we see him coming in and he, you know, he does say good morning to his staff, at least acknowledges them. The Duke brothers just don't even respond to people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just really, really great in this role. And I, I, you know, and he has a good stretch of the movie where he's that dark part of Winthorpe's character arc where he's at his lowest that, you know, he's been taken out of his rich environment and pushed out on the street and 
no matter what he does, can't get back in. No one even believes him. So he has no access to his, anything that's his belongings. And then he's at rock bottom in that, you know, the scene that does take place at Christmas when he's in the Santa suit and steals like what, like a ham or something. <laughs> he steals a whole, a whole piece of, was it like salmon or something? Right? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> is it salmon or is it, I thought it was like a prime rib or something like a whole yeah, it like, like prime rib. Yeah, I when don't he's, know. It's when he's pink. chewing, it's, when he's guys... chewing through his beard, like yeah. in the bus, oh, yeah. like isn't yeah. that prime rib? I always thought that was salmon or That's some salmon. sort of fish. Is it guys, salmon? When's the last time you had salmon guys? <laughs> It's 100% salmon. It didn't look like that. it didn't look like what salmon are you when talking it was about? in his beard. This is salmon gate here. I, I, I know I know he steals salmon, rib. but I I know he steals salmon as well, but I feel like when he's eating it in in through his beard on the bus, that's not salmon. Like that I feel like is a big hunk of meat of like chunk of meat. He, like prime rib, not not nuts. Uh, is it not? Is it salmon? It's salmon. I don't know. He, he, I know Akira, he steals the salmon, but I don't know. Yeah, Ackroyd even said okay. it. Like when he was talking about the uh, the blackface uh, later in his career, like you know, ten years ago or something, uh, or that movie, and then uh, or the movie in general. And uh, he's like, "No, that that was that was me. Like I I was eating that salmon through through the beard. That was that that was beard hair in my mouth, like or something oh, like okay. that." Okay, yeah, that's so, gross. That's salmon, guys. Salmon gate. We got to get you to more fancy parties where they serve giant salmon. <laughs> I eat salmon that's, all the time. That's, that's like, that's like, uh, yeah. Little baby salmons. Little babies. I eat little baby salmon. Listen, <laughs> yeah. man. You eat baby salmons. <laughs> I guess. He, I well, shop I mean, at the Costco. I see the big fillets of salmon. <laughs> all right. But he can't even, like, kill himself. Like, he tries to shoot himself, and the, <laughs> the yeah, gun misfires. That's he's a great moment. the anything. gun, and it, it fires. That know? was bananas. What, like, yeah. two days of this, and he he's going to kill himself. Like, yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. Fell off the deep end quick. Wow. Yeah. This is yeah. nuts. Yeah, and, the whole movie, like, really goes, it takes place over, really, a short period of time. A lot like happens. 48 hours. That'll happen. No, no. This could have been forty-eight hours. Yeah. yeah, I think technically it started right around Thanksgiving, though. I think they mentioned Thanksgiving very early yeah. in the movie, and then mm-hmm. by uh, by January two, that's when it ends. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's about six weeks, maybe. Yeah. Um. Goodness. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis. So Jamie Lee at this point, this is a pivotal role for her, just in the sense that. This is what gets her out of doing horror movies. So let me get this straight. I'm going to give you 20 for the cab, and you're going to give me 50 when we get to your house? That is correct. My butler, Coleman, will give you $50, drive you anywhere in the city you wish to go. You don't exactly look like the type that has a butler. You know, if you're hustling me. Hustling you? Hustling you? You don't think they give these to just anyone, do you? charge goods and services in over 86 countries around the world. Yeah? Well, I don't take credit cards. She She took a pay cut as well, right? She took a massive pay cut. She So she had done Halloween, Terror Train, Prom Night, Halloween 2. Her her fee on on Halloween 2 was a million dollars. Oh, nice. And her fee for trading places was... $70,000. $70,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she said, I mean, she talked about how she would have really done it for anything because she just needed the role in a big movie that could show 
that she has acting prowess and she could yeah. do comedy and it was a huge success for her even though regardless of her for whatever reason taking her top off like this is what ends up getting her john cleese like completely pointed to this movie as why he cast her in a fish called wanda oh. and jamie lee credits john landis that john landis backed her up just like he did for Ackroyd. that this is the cast he wanted he saw something in her and she totally brought it like her the difference in her I mean, I love, you guys know, I love Halloween. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. But you can tell that she's a young actress, not very experienced. She's not definitely, the difference between Jamie Lee and Halloween and even Halloween 2 and this movie is like night and day. Like she definitely took a giant leap forward as a performer. Oh, agreed. She's, she really, yeah. she really is on fire in her, in her scenes and just knows her character and, she the way she's the way Jamie Lee carries herself. She always had that it, and then she so now her, as she keeps doing these films, she's really become now more and more of an, a great actor. Like, yeah, well, she really she, is good in this. Yeah, she seems so comfortable. Like this is the first movie that you know in her career up to this point. This is the first movie where she seems very relaxed and comfortable in the character, and is just that it's not she's not trying that hard, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. Like it, it comes off so effortlessly from from her, and you're instantly charmed by her. Like I, and that, I mean that's every movie she's in, I think. But mm -hmm. it's just she's just a very charming, and and she she runs those scenes. She is like when she is setting the stage with Winthrop, like she's in charge. Like so, she's definitely a commanding presence, and um, I can and I can see why like she's always going to sort of be in Landis's corner. Like it, if she's going to she can really thank him for put like giving her the opportunity to to branch out and change yeah. her life like literally just change her life and her Absolutely. career so i could see why she's not like quick to to judge anything about this film too harshly or anything like that yeah and not that not that she's like protecting it it's just sort of like she can only really say positive things about the whole experience yeah because if it wasn't for this movie she was going to do psycho too and if oh. she had done Psycho 2, she would have never gotten out of horror movies. Right. She would have been great in Psycho 2, though. I mean, Psycho 2 is totally underrated. Though. I love it's Psycho very, 2. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. For never getting talked about, it's really good. But yeah, yeah it's, it's. I'm glad. I mean, you're right. She would have never, ever gotten out of... It would yeah. have been that much harder. Well, with the connection with her mom in the first movie, like it, mm -hmm. it was just multi-layered and yeah. So Now I'm they, sad that didn't happen. <laughs> 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 it would have just been a cool thing. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, last but certainly not least, Denholm Elliott, oh. who's Aww. great as Coleman, the butler awesome. in this one. This is my second Denholm Elliott episode. Yeah. <laughs> he was in Noises Off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yes, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the year of the Denholm. Finally. It had to happen sooner or later. Yeah. He's great <laughs> in this. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's, you know, so, I mean, he'd been acting for a really long time at this point and, you know, a ton of, great roles but most you know he's most mostly known for playing uh marcus in the indiana jones films but this is this is another one that's great noises off like we we said another great performance by him um really kind of peppers these good roles but uh he's so he's such a strong character in this that he is sort of coerced by the dukes in playing along with this switcheroo but you know he you 
he doesn't really particularly like Winthorpe. You can tell that right away when, you know, we see him in the beginning, like, you know, serving them their food and they're basically like about to have sex in front of him. And they, they make him make this whatever dessert he's making and then immediately say he can have it and then cut to him throwing it away in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> but he's got a lot of like really like, nice subtle little things like where he doesn't have a lot of dialogue that just comes out and says it but it's just the little things he does like when he's like when he when he pretends to not know who winthorpe is and like the little moments at the door where you're like you know and it's a it's just little acting things but he's really yeah. effective yeah yeah where it's where you can tell that he's not comfortable doing this and feels bad and and then yeah. eventually gives in you know when, yeah. when when he and valentine or valentine really puts together what the dukes are up to and, you know, he's right on board with, you know, what once Ackroyd or Ackroyd Winthorpe attempts suicide, uh, then that's when they all sort of come together and realize they're going to they're going to fight back. Yeah. But yeah, really, really good uh, role here. And then we got a million faces that pop up in this movie, you know. From, oh, man. I've got my Paul big Gleason, box of just cameos way. where I'm just like, question, like, Giancarlo Esposito's in this movie? Like, you <laughs> <Yeah. know? laughs> Before we do yeah. that, I do want to say Paul Gleason, just always great as that, you know, one of the king dickheads of the 80s, yeah. whether it's this or <laughs> Die Hard or The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Not yep. um, an Ewok adventure. He's a good guy in that one. But... <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, but love, I, think... I love Paul Gleason. I don't want to. I don't want to harp on it, but King Dickhead is perfect the description of like his characters. Like that's great. I, well done. Yeah. You didn't steal that from a movie, did you? Like, no, never from the film it, King Dickhead. Yeah. King, yeah. He plays he's a doctor. He's a real jerk. He's a real jerk. <laughs> what would the poster be? Paul Gleason stars as King Dickhead. King Dickhead. Is it like King Ralph? Like King Ralph. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's sitting yeah. on a throne, but it's shaped, you know, pretty distinct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but there's a million cameos. Joe, who who do you who'd you catch in this movie? Oh my god. I I think it was like it was the surprise things that were like people who were there for a line and you're like, wait a second, you know. But uh I mean, obviously Frank Oz turning up uh mm -hmm. in his his little scene, and uh, you know, that's always fun when Frank Oz just appears in real life, you know. Um uh, Christopher Guest's brother, Nicholas Guest, is one of the like douchey guys who and, I think and only Jamie Lee's future brother-in-law. Right, but I think to see him, you would only really relate him to Christmas Vacation, right? Because he's not a real distinct-looking actor, but but he's you know he's in so much of Christmas Vacation that I'm always like, oh, that's Nick Guest, yeah. Uh, uh, Bo Diddley is is yes. the guy at the pawn shop, and you're like, that's Bo Diddley. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's wild. Philip Bosco turns up, has one yeah. line. Uh, Steven Stucker from Airplane turns up in that one yep. little part, um, which I thought was a lot of fun. Um, the guy on the beach at the end, this is just something for me. The guy at the beach at the end, uh, Dimitri, is Barry Denon, who played Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar, who's like the third lead of Jesus Christ Superstar, and he has one line in this movie, huh. and I have no idea why. <laughs> um, and then I had to actually, I had to put the movie back in to see this because I went through, I was just going through the, the cast list real quick. And this like just struck me because it was such a strange thing. But at the end of the movie, when they're on the, the floor of the stock exchange and the guy that's making the bids and stuff for the Duke brothers is, uh, is Richard Hunt. Yeah, Wilson. Yeah. Uh, and it's played by Richard Hunt, who has no live acting credits that I could find, live 
you know, as a person, but he was one of the original five Muppeteers. Like it's him, uh, Jim Henson, Frank Oz, Dave Goals, and Jerry Nelson. And I had to look it up because I was like, Richard Hunt's in this movie. And I, so like I went, I was like, oh yeah, huh. I've seen him in pictures, but I've never seen him talk or do anything. But if you listen to him, he's Scooter. He has very much a Scooter voice. <laughs> um, in that one, in like at the beginning, when he first, before he's just shouting, you know? Yeah. But like, I had to put it back in. I was like, I couldn't believe that. And I just, I, I never would have realized it. But I, thought, I think it's wonderful that it exists because Richard Hunt only lived to be about 40. He died in the early 90s. And so it's it's nice that this exists. And I, I just I was stunned. I, I I didn't notice it when I first watched it. And uh, it was really a nice thing. So, yeah, that's uh, that's I had the same thing uh, looking through the credits. And it was um, uh, Arlene Sorkin, who's an actress. She she was the original Harley Quinn. Uh for the animated series of, of Batman, she recently passed away this year. Um, but I knew her name immediately, and so she's just one of the people at the part at the party uh, oh. that you just wouldn't know. Just like, getting early she, credits. Yeah, I mean, she yeah, that was one of her. It was one of her very first uh, film film gigs, and then you know, but like she had been doing TV, I think, in like in Canada or something like that, or in other places, like like local stuff. Like she's not a, you know, she wasn't a, a big name or anything. But anyway. Uh, yeah her her name stood out to me as well it's just like that that personal cameo <laughs> yeah yeah that, this didn't even one. mention all the stuff on the train the franken and davis stuff and oh yeah, yeah. Jim belushi Frank and, and all davis that. jim belushi yeah i have a whole um, because i have my whole other box what the hell is the train sequence doing here <laughs> and like what would we have lost if we took it out well we would have lost franken and davis but we also would have lost jim belushi so yeah eh, maybe it wouldn't have been as the worst thing jim belushi as harvey <laughs> yeah. that classic a, character a very well thought out character beloved by audiences forever <laughs> that's what you could show up to a halloween party in a gorilla suit and they'd be like oh you're a gorilla and I'm like no i'm playing harvey from no i'm Trader Harvey. <laughs> i'm jim belushi <laughs> like, oh yeah i get he it he loves <laughs> he loves gorillas and hates clowns we know we know enough about harvey depth <laughs> um i caught uh bill cobb also as the bartender and uh, yeah earlier yeah. in the film so that was uh in one of his 3000 film appearances yeah uh yeah so just this is loaded and and a lot of that is i I think it's frank oz or not frank oz is uh john landis that you know he he did the same thing in blues brothers that there there's a lot of faces bo diddley is bo diddley in blues Brothers? i think bo diddley's in that too Yeah. yeah 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 so he loves to just throw people out there frank oz is also in blues brothers yeah you know, for these quick appearances, um, that's kind of a, a trademark of his. Yeah. I wish I could find, like, but like, you know, I'm such a Muppet guy. Like, I wish I could find, like, how did Richard Hunt get in this movie? Because I just, I've never seen him in anything. And looking through his credits, he has Muppet credits. Like, that's it. And so I wonder if it's because Frank Oz is in it. Like, was there some sort of Pro- something? Probably. Yeah. yeah probably yeah. some link there. Yeah. My favorite, um, you know, cameo, get ready for this one. It's Walt Gorney, who is one of the, I think one of the Duke brothers staff. Walt Gorney is also Crazy Ralph in Friday the 13th, part one and two. Oh, so, nice. He did play something other than Crazy Ralph. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, okay. So something else I, I just want to mention that I really think is a great part of the movie is Elmer Bernstein's score. Hmm. Yeah. Just it's really... It's, it gets the energy going right away with that class of classical, you know, kind of score. And um, 
using the marriage of Figaro as an undertone, which is sort of thematically matches the storyline of what's happening in this movie. So um, I think the Landis Elmer Bernstein team up was always good, but also, you know, uh, so many great scores. I, I love his score in stripes as well. So uh, just a great, great composer and well used here. Joe, do you got anything else for the train sequence you want to go oh my over? God. Or do we kind of I mean, cover it all? I think, I mean, Am I the, am I like, does anybody else notice this though? Maybe because if you've seen the movie a lot, maybe you just don't notice it. But like, to me, that felt like that part in Superman two, where it's just comedy breaks out for two minutes and everybody kind of hates it. I think it's kind of fun because I saw it since I was a kid, but the train sequence feels like that. Like all of a sudden Franken and Davis are here and I love Franken and Davis, but why? And then yeah. all of a sudden Jim Belushi's here and then there's gorillas and people in gorilla suits and it's it just seems like such horseshit. Yeah. yeah. And like, I don't, I, it almost feels like something that would have been crammed in after the fact, like, well, we need something here. So let's do this instead. And it, it's, it's just distracting. And I feel like without it, the movie then almost is like the correct length for this sort of movie. Cause it's a little too long, you know, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be quite as stupid where there's just this stupid run of gorilla jokes and rape jokes I mean, and blackface and all of this stuff would be removed. Isn't yeah. it just an opportunity to bring in all your SNL friends? Like it's yeah. Yeah, I mean, that could have been an Ackroyd move. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I mean, let's they're just... all direct connections to Ackroyd. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean I that mean, could just be it. It just I was I don't know. I just found it so jarring when it comes when it comes about and as it's unfolding that every part of it is kind of problematic and doesn't really even fit with the rest of the movie in a lot of ways. So I don't know. Like even comedy wise, it doesn't feel right, you know? You know, when when my movies all when I feel like they're just needing something. It's usually Jim Belushi that that's I think to. That's, usually, that's yeah. the answer to most of life's problems. When in doubt, Belushi. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, it, it is. It's it's it is a little jarring. Like we we get this shift, and and I think story wise, it's because they are you know getting into their character and their you know stereotype costumes and everything. So we need a bridge to to kind of cover that gap. But but you know you mentioned the running time on this movie. It's an hour and fifty six minutes. A little long. I, I, little that's long. too long. You know, looking yeah. back at it now, like this is a nine great comedies are 90 minutes to, to, to a hundred minutes. So right. that's your sweet spot. And this is, and you're, you're right. This whole train sequence is something that probably could have been done another way to you know, really would have dropped 10 minutes out of the movie. Right. Right. And that's why I, that's why I almost wonder if like there was some story to it, but I couldn't find anything that explained why that that whole sequence is there. Um, because it does feel like the easiest losable thing. Um, and do they have train parties like New Year's parties like that on on trains? I don't know. I, that's be kind of boss, right? That'd be a little the, awesome. Yeah, I could In see the eighties, they partied on everything. Yeah, <laughs> pop on the California Zephyr and do a little coke. It'd be great. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! All right. Uh, what else? What else? Anything else we want to cover before we we head over to uh, box office glory? I got one more thing. I feel like I'm 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 soaking up a lot of air, but uh, no, that's why we 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 love you soaking up the air. Well, I didn't know how much we want. I didn't know if you were going to get into it and how much you want to get into it. But coming to America is an actual sequel to this movie, right? Can we all just yes. we just agree that, right? So with that in mind, <laughs> I came up with this idea of why that possibly would work because it doesn't work on the surface. Like obviously, this isn't a sequel to, to Trading Places, but um. I like the idea that as Eddie got, got richer through the 80s, he has to 
very much kind of stepped down on who he was in his early movies in the 80s, right? So like Beverly Hills Cop 2 looking so different from Beverly Hills Cop 1 is a lot because of Tony Scott, but it's also, it, it's because he wanted to be an action hero somehow, more so than a comedian maybe. And I almost feel like coming to America then is like because he's playing this rich, rich character coming from trading places where he's like, the whole point is this anti eat the rich thing that then when he's playing that part and he runs into the Duke brothers and gives them money, it's like, holy shit. Like he's, I think it's actually supposed to be coming all because now he's rich in real life. He's this super rich guy and he doesn't want to be associated with that anymore. And so that was sort of, where I was going with this. And then I got kind of lost because obviously <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But like, I was trying to think, well, maybe it's, you know, something with that. So that was my coming to, because I, I I assume everybody remembers this. I mean, I, I think of coming to America as a, a movie everybody knows. And then early 80s, Eddie Murphy, not as much because that's the age I was. But mm -hmm. there's this one weird moment in coming to America, which was also directed by John Landis, mm -hmm. where he runs into like, the Duke brothers are homeless. It's a, it's clearly a sequel to this movie. Yeah. And he gives them money, not knowing who they are, but then they're, and they call each other Mortimer. And, uh, and so it's really, clearly uh, that moment. So, well, and, and in coming to America, the sequel, yeah. there's, there's a mention of the Duke brothers having come back into power. See, really? so, oh, yeah, I only saw coming really. to oh. America once, and that's all part of the cinematic universe. It's all it connected. Yeah. I couldn't finish that movie, I got about halfway, and I was like, I'm yeah. I tapped the out. sequel, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I watched yeah. it, and I, I, I don't remember much of it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, same, yeah. Watching interesting, some... look at that. Interesting, I wanted to bring it up, I didn't know, you know, yeah. where we were going to go with this. It's like talking about whether. What is it? Um, Out of Sight is a sequel to Jackie Brown because it sort of is, but in sort of, you know, but it, just because they're both based on books. And yeah. the same, in this, in the book series, technically they would be connected, but yep. Um, I think it's fun. It's fun, and also more Ralph Bellamy. Come on, it's like it's <laughs> making it's making connections for for your favorite media in, in a lot of ways that are sometimes intentional and sometimes unintentional, like sort of a a fast bender as Magneto kind of thing. Like, oh, we're back to. Did we do we back to? Rogue I don't think I don't think I, meant, I, I don't think I mentioned that on the air. Which movie is out of sight? Sorry, I'm going back to your Jackie Brown That's out of sight. Clooney sequel. and of sight. Uh, Jennifer Lopez. Oh, okay. Yeah, but right. it's because why actually is this? It's because Michael Keaton is playing the same part in both movies, or he's playing mm -hmm. a very similar, similar part in both yeah. movies. And then no, because same, same Samuel role. Jackson yeah. turns up at the end of Out of Sight. As a character, you could make the case is his character from Jackie Brown in a convoluted sort of way. Hmm. So, like, I've always thought there's something there, but I, I haven't spent a lot of time trying to iron it out. But this, I mean, this is obvious. Like, this is clearly the same characters in the same world oh, yeah, by the same definitely. director and all the same yep. people. So, yeah. It's a fun little wink. Yeah, it's something fun. It is. But as a kid, I had no idea what the hell any of that meant because I hadn't seen Trading Places. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite little moments in this movie is when uh, the Duke brothers are explaining commodities to Valentine. And they're explaining like bacon, like you would have in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Eddie Murphy just looks at the camera. <laughs> yeah, like two so of those moments. That's like a brilliant yeah. moment. It's yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's a great moment. Didn't he do that too when he got he was in the car or something or uh yeah. earlier in the film? Like he's just like, what? Like 
Oh, there's the, when they were shooting the scene, the first scene where the Duke brothers, like, you know, get Valentine into their limo, right? When they were, when they were filming that scene, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy were arguing about how many movies they had made. And Ralph Bellamy's like, well, this is my 99th movie. And Don Amici goes, well, this is my 100th movie. And then Eddie Murphy goes, guys, between the three of us, we've done 201 movies. <laughs> <laughs> so it was his second movie. That's great. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> that's just like, that's just like Eddie Murphy, like at his best, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm doing um, comedy that doesn't involve racial jokes or homophobic jokes. And at this time, because his standup was so kind of vulgar you know you, yeah. he had to really censor himself for a movie like this yeah yeah how could you do this to us after everything we've done for you oh see i made lewis a bet here you lewis bet me that we couldn't both get rich and put you on the poorhouse at the same time you didn't think we could do it i won i lost one dollar thank you lewis after you Certainly. <laughs> Do we care how confusing the end is? I think it's a really important thing that most people do not understand how <laughs> the ending actually plays out. Right. I mean, it. I, I had to look it up and it makes sense. But like, is it weird that you have to look it up for it to make sense? Like, it, it is. Look, even Landis wasn't clear on how it worked. He's like, they're just going to you know, do the shot list and shoot it. It, but. it never bothered me ever. Like I yeah. never, at no point when I was a kid watching this, was I like, that doesn't make, I don't get it. But after watching it this time, I was like, well, I should probably figure out how this <laughs> works. Cause I am 40 plus years old and it probably <laughs> makes sense that at this point in my life, I understand what this means, but, but like, yeah, it, like it's weird because it doesn't make sense. And unless you, study futures or commodities or anything like that like you're probably not going to get it but i don't think it ever bought it's like it's who cares right like it doesn't even yeah. make a difference it's yeah. just like it doesn't the really, good guys yeah. the good guys won yeah it's like it's like they really trying to dukes it's like really trying to be like well wait how do proton packs work like i really need <laughs> yeah. an, you know, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. really matter like it's well just... and it's like the flux capacitor it's just what makes time travel possible Right, yeah. right. That's it's it. that so, suspension of disbelief, but but in both proton packs and the flux capacitor, at no point is somebody like, oh, that could be real. Like the stock market is real. Like what they did in this is something that really could be done. Yeah. This I'm shows... still waiting on my fucking hoverboard because <laughs> that shit is fake. So <laughs> so it's not exactly one for one. But yeah, the suspension of disbelief still works here, but it is funny that it's based in some like actual truth yeah and still nobody really like they're like whatever i think there's there's such an unreality to the wall street trading floor in movies where none of it makes sense where everybody's just shouting and you're like how it's is anything getting done like yeah it's it just is, craziness though. like and so i think that, like, is it is it still that from way that. they they stole like they like when they went down there they were going to shoot during hours and because they the the traders were so uh, you know, distracted by Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd that they were losing, you know, screwing up billions of dollars. <laughs> billions of, billions <laughs> of like, dollars well, in trades were. But they, they shot all this footage that's in there. Basically, the shots that don't have one of the stars in it is 
like yeah. stolen footage from the real floor. Yeah. But to Brent's point, this can't still be like this, right? There's yeah, got to be more of a digital still, component to doing this. I feel like everything's E-Trade and all that stuff yeah. now. It's like, is it? are there yeah. still people on the floor of the stock market exchange? Like yelling yeah. and screaming and throwing pieces of paper at each other. And how does yeah. anyone under, like, how does anything get accomplished down there? It's I just, that's yelling, what I mean. It's so strange. Like writing you know. numbers on little pieces of. Yeah. Yeah. I almost always thought of it as just a visual metaphor for just how crazy the stock right. market Same is. Same here. Like, but it can't possibly really, be like that. Like that can't be really yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Uh, I think it just shows that the whole fucking thing is a grift and, and yeah. the, rich, the rich are just going to get richer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, so yeah. <laughs> the absurdity of, of well, how it all is. Now it's time for socialism corner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a grift. I'm Don't just saying. So. Uh, if if everyone could me... do it, they'd do it. <laughs> Vladimir Lenin was right. <laughs> the other thing that got me was watching it this time kind of jumped out at me. So, all right. Valentine and Winthorpe switch places pretty quickly. Valentine is integrated into Winthorpe's home life and his work life, right? He gets Winthorpe's job and he's really good at it. Like immediately. Yeah. Ow. Yep. How would that be? Yeah. Couldn't be that hard. Because all you got to do is flip coins, apparently. Like you're just yeah. like, whatever. Yeah. Because it's a grift. <laughs> it's all a yeah. scam. It's it kind of like, what was it? Like, was it like in Big, where he just walks in and he's immediately good at that job? And like, you know, yeah. just that, that was a shortcut thing. Like, well, none of this means anything. Just, you know, it's all marketing and bullshit. And, you know. But he's That's a why... kid in a man's body making <laughs> toys for kids. He knows how what kids want. Of course sure. he's good at that job. Big used to be called What Kids Want. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the original script was yeah what uh, kids want you and then the you adventures. gotta love the 80s because there's Gosh. so much of that suspension of disbelief and like no this is just happening yeah <laughs> yeah look at police academy how did any of those people become cops come on oh come on it's 80s it's fun yeah you know come on. well they had to go back to school that's why they went they... <laughs> back back in training <laughs> they had to go back to training <laughs> because the first time it didn't take uh, and they needed to put citizens on patrol. That's right. 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 And they yeah. had to go to Moscow at some point, which yeah. is yep. crazy. Let's not forget. Let's not forget. They went a little Miami. vacation to Miami Beach. Yep. I think we got I think we definitely need to find space in our in our <laughs> programming to do the police academy series. Oh, we've got to. Why we've haven't we done been that? asking for this since day one? Since before, yeah. yeah. Before I was ever on the show, I was like, hey, you're going to do all the police academy movies, right? Yeah, we have <laughs> to do that. All is one show, one 14-hour episode. Uh, we <laughs> cover every episode. We need another, we need a Guten month to That's get right. it kicked yeah. off. Gutenfest. Yeah. Guten, Guten yeah. Do that, yeah, three minute a baby, start with cocoon. Yeah. <laughs> if, it, if there was a if month that started with G, we could do it. Yeah. No. Well, just get about the 13th month. Yeah. Gebuary. Gebuary. starts with the G. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we already did Three Men and a Baby Joe, so we're already... Yeah. Oh, you did Three Men and a Baby. We did. We started yeah. it. We cracked yeah. the seal. Now we just oh. need to, like, follow well, up. There's a lot yeah. of cocoon corner Co happening here. Yeah. Cocoonies. The cocoonies are the waiting. <laughs> <laughs> we need more Gutenberg. And I think I mentioned oh, this before. Oh, there was that movie called, what was it? Don't Tell Her It's Me. I saw that movie to death when I yep. was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So let's slide it in. Don't you dare forget Zeus and Roxanne. Who <laughs> would ever? Oh, is, that the, is that the cat and dog movie? Nope. Oh. Milo and Otis? That's what. <laughs> yep, that's the yeah. one. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, let's check out how Trading Places did at the box office with a little box office glory. 
my ribs are hurting on this one. <laughs> I don't think I've cried during an episode before. <laughs> cried with joy. Yeah. The thought of cocoonies at your door. <laughs> All right. Trading Places, uh, film late 1982 to early 83 in Philadelphia and New York. It had a $15 million budget. It opens on June 8th, 1983 at number three. Oh, hmm. number three opened up against Octopussy. So, well, heavy competition with James Bond. It was, I mean, this is a loaded, you know, summer. So it was kind yeah. of like you're going to go up against something. And a lot of studios were really constantly moving, shifting release dates. So they're not in competition with each other. But Paramount wanted to go toe to toe with uh, James Bond, uh, since especially since Bond was not what, you know, not at the height of, uh, their box office glory. So, um, okay, so it opened up against Octopussy, and it was between Octopussy, which was at number two, and Psycho Two in its second week was number four. Mm, see, what was nice. the top movie? And there we go. Yeah, Psycho Two. Jamie Lee maybe made a mistake. She could have. I mean, she could have had a piece of the piece of the top box office either way she went. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Return of the Jedi was the number one movie of the week in its third week of release. What's Trading Places one? had a $7.3 million opening week. Huh? But a had return a of the ne- what? Yeah. <laughs> Never heard Who of that. Who that now? Uh, Trading Places brought in $90.4 million domestically, another $30 million internationally for a $120 million gross. Pretty That's good. Pretty good um, return. Yeah, yeah. It ends up as the number four movie of 1983 between Flashdance and War Games. Oh, war games. Nice. So look at the, the, the box office, the top uh, five box office movies of, of 83. Listen to this lineup. You'd never see anything like it today. Return of the Jedi. Okay, that's not a surprise. Terms of Endearment, mm. another James L. Brooks classic. Yeah. Flashdance, number three. Trading Places, number four, and War Games, number five. What an eclectic group of films. That is a mix, man. That is all over the place. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, is it? I still have never seen Flashdance. Has it ever? I don't think it's heard the aged music. that well, but it has some memorable scenes. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen Flashdance either, now that you mention it. It's one She's of those a welder? I, yeah, <laughs> right? she welds. She welds. Yeah. Weld, she right? welds and it's a welding film, yeah. as I recall, like an industrial <laughs> metallurgy. Is yeah. she? Is that yeah. real or are you just... I don't no, know. I have no idea. I know there's yeah. a scene where she dances. Yes. Yeah. Right? And it's like the whole thing. It's, it's I always got it and than... Footloose all... Like, I got those two confused for mm. the longest it's time. It's kind of... Fla- Flashdance, in my memory, is kind of like saturday night fever in that it's a lot darker than it seems just from the what you know of it the, of the dance stuff that there's mm. there's darker storylines going on in there mm. but check it out go go back and watch it it's the number sure. you know the number uh three movie jump of right 19- on it 83 <laughs> 40 years from now maybe but the uh <laughs> like we talked about the fallout of trading places was was huge for people that you know this continued landis's you know, high point of his career. The next film he would release is uh, is The Twilight Zone. So that would kind of the downward spiral would start the next year. Although he would have 
you know, thanks to Eddie Murphy, he would have one more kind of uptick with coming to America, but really was never the same director after after the Twilight Zone court case, really. So, you know, I thought that, but then he he did like Three Amigos, and I mean, there's other things post. Oh, forgot about Three Amigos. Yeah, right. Like, I, well, I, like I thought I, I thought that I for the longest time I thought the Twilight Zone thing basically halted his his career right but i don't i don't know that that's actually what happened because he had a couple other movies in the 80s but then he didn't do much of anything after that though right like he just you know he had what was it innocent blood uh beverly mm-hmm. hills cop three his relationship with eddie was really interesting that eddie kind of does him a favor and brings him on coming to america and they have a huge falling out during the making mm-hmm. that movie and they're not like they're not even talking to each other um and but then years later, and he brings him back again to do Beverly Hills Cop three, and I think they were still not talking to each other. So mm. very interesting relationship between those guys. Mm. Uh, but like that, I, my like, favorite that I mean, terrible was, second I, Blues Brothers movie, like yeah, <laughs> Blues Brothers two thousand, pretty rough. Yeah, but he he did. I mean, Three Amigos, Spies Like Us, those are both post. Coming to America was huge. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of it after that. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think coming to America was the last thing. So maybe, you know, maybe the falling out with Eddie is, I don't know. He but. he was also, you know, famously known as a very difficult person to work for. Um, yeah, I mean, you might yelling. not make it off the set alive. So right. it's not, e- <laughs> right. not easy. Yeah. yeah, no guarantees going home. <laughs> you not a lot of people going to sign up for that. Yeah, Don't work for John Landis. He may kill yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> John Landis. Uh, Eddie, though, you know, big hit for Eddie, follows it up with Beverly Hills Cop. And, you know, right after that, Golden Child, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Coming to America. So it's hit after hit after hit. Uh, and really kind of doesn't start to die down till probably what, like the late 90s, mid 90s? There's mean, ups and downs, but there were still some okay movies in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like nutty, after the was Nutty, nutty professor, professor was like, yeah. like it does family fair. He does family stuff after that, right? I mean, don't forget Bowfinger. Oh, I love yeah. Bowfinger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bowfinger. But then you got Pluto Nash and Meet Dave and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Shrek Norbit. franchise. Norbit. Norbit. Norbit I mean, was he, a huge hit. He's yeah. been in things that were okay, but like, I mean, it's clearly just not. You know, like he's good in. I don't love Dreamgirls as a movie, but he's great in Dreamgirls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was great in the Dolomite movie, even though that's kind yes. of an, uh, that is good though. Yeah. That, yeah, he was really good in that. Yeah. People like Daddy well, now Daycare. He's, he's finally sort of, I feel like he's in the middle of a comeback now. And and he's got a holiday film. Talk about the holidays. Oh, Candy yeah. Kane Lane, who's excited? What is it? I saw a picture of it. I don't, I don't know what that is. Candy Lane. It's like a Netflix movie or something, isn't Candy it? Candy Kane yeah. Lane? Yeah. Yeah. For it's, okay. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a holiday streaming affair. So uh, Can't wait. Can't yeah. wait to watch it with children. It's probably a Christmas movie. It is it, yeah. with the name Sounds Candy like Cane Lane. Sounds, I don't know. Sounds like an yeah. I'd have movie. to see it. I'd have to yeah. see it to, to determine if it's a Christmas movie. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a horror <laughs> movie. I don't know. It could be. <laughs> no, don't this go is... down Candy Cane Lane. There's definitely no diet. Could be a could yeah. be a Purim movie. Maybe. Ooh, a nice Purim <laughs> film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody dresses up like Eddie Murphy this year. So you know. <laughs> uh, Training places we mentioned did huge things for Jamie Lee Curtis and and boosted her career maybe beyond anything else besides Halloween. Um, 
Very important. Dan Aykroyd, this is kind of turning him upwards as well. Uh, he'd followed up with Ghostbusters and a, a ton of movies throughout the 80s and 90s. And uh, yeah, and then, of course, for Don Amici, and we said already that he, you know, really springboarded off this. I think Ralph Bellamy did as well. Don't forget Disorderlies. <laughs> Ralph Bellamy. <laughs> the, fat, the Fat Boys movie. Yeah. Good movie. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> Look at everybody's got to pay bills, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, come on. But the, the movie was, was the Fat Boys for... movie. Was that the Disorderlies or whatever? Yeah, that? yeah, no, that was classic. Yeah. <laughs> well, my my internet cut out for two seconds. Oh, you missed uh, the Disorderlies. I just caught part. a whole bunch of laughing, and I was like, oh, that's been oh, a that whole face. episode. The uh, laugh with us. The movie was nominated for one Oscar, and guess who it was for? That's right. Elmer Bernstein, nice hey. Oscar nomination, doesn't win, but oh. uh, it did win two BAFTAs. Ooh, and those went to Denholm Elliott and Jamie Lee Curtis. So getting acknowledged nice. over there in the UK, and uh, and yeah. So I don't know how would could you would you recommend this movie? What do you think audiences of today would say about Trading Places? If someone said I'm looking for like a great 80s comedy, I'd probably recommend a few dozen movies before this one. But yeah, like yeah, probably the toy, and then I probably re- <laughs> sure <laughs> right, <laughs> absolutely the toy. Yeah. Uh, sure. So no, I mean but blazing I mean, saddles, Ghoulies like... two. <laughs> What'd you say, Goonies two? Ghoulies two. Oh, Ghoulies two. two. Yeah. Sure uh so i'm like but not but if someone was like oh what about eddie murphy movies i'm like oh well then you should you should see this like but i mean where where would you be uh unless someone's looking for something specific i would name other other movies before this uh yeah down the line i don't know i don't know about you guys i yeah, think I don't you know. have to put a disclaimer you know if you if like you can say exactly that like if you want to see a really funny eddie murphy performance like this is one of his top films, but there's a ton of racist stuff, you know, racist, racist elements in the movie, sexist elements in the movie, um, homophobic stuff that you have to put that disclaimer on. You can't, uh, you know, I think crowds today, especially the younger crowd are, I don't think they're going to kind of tolerate the kind of humor in this movie. I don't think they're going to find it yeah. funny. I'm not going to, I'm not going to recommend this to any of my woke friends. That's for sure. Like I'm going <laughs> to pass on that because they will yeah. not talk to me again. <laughs> my kids watched it and were like, Nope, I'm good. One <laughs> not this. Yeah. Yep. Did they, did they get through the whole thing? Oh yeah, they did. And they saw like, they acknowledged that there, you know, there's funny elements to it, but they didn't feel like, what was funny outweighed the problematic stuff. So, yeah, I don't even know if it's the problematic stuff that really puts me off that much. I mean, obviously it's off putting and I don't necessarily want to see it, but I don't know. I mean, it's while there is great, there are funny moments. It's like there's funnier Eddie Murphy and there's funnier Dan Aykroyd. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, Oh, there's just like some amazing jokes in this thing. Like it's, it's all very amusing and there, there are funny moments, but I don't even know if it's the funniest it would rank in the funniest 80s movies like very high necessarily mm-hmm. yeah i wonder at this point like 
I think of this as like, oh, if you're an SNL fan, but like if you're an SNL fan from the era when I'm an SNL, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think yeah. today you'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. like young kids who are into SNL, were they into the first 10 years of SNL? Like, that's what this movie, I think, would really aim for. Yeah. Because, yeah, like I don't like I think it's funny. I think there's funny stuff in it. I think there's a lot of good actors in it. So there's, it's a good curiosity. But yeah. I don't yeah, I don't know how well it's aging and besides the problematic parts of it but the comedy like i'm again i'm surprised at stretches how stupid this movie is and again and this is a movie that like i always thought of as a really great comedy and when you watch it you're like yeah eddie's really good and i think it's a great dan Aykroyd performance but it hits some real lazy stretches and and then it, and it is kind of too long and the ending is a, a crazy mess like I don't know. It, it it has kind of a by committee feel in a lot of ways where we're going to throw a bunch of crazy different stuff out there and it's, it's going to be wacky and kind of funny. But um, but I do as a formation thing, if you're really into any one of these people or just the SNL group in general, and you want to see some real like novel things like Franken and Davis are in this movie, which is just not that common a thing in a movie or, you know, I, I think there's there's sort of an appeal to that. But but that that's almost about it. Like, I think it really boils down to like like film aficionados sort of, which is an yeah, odd thing to say like about this if, kind of movie. Yeah. You like know, you're going to teach a, a class on certain elements, you know, like yeah. uh, specific actors or, or the history of, you know, comedic film, yeah. you know, things like that potentially. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the further and further you get away from the eighties, like the less and less meaningful, like, or even relatable, this movie kind of is like, even it, like the, the themes and undertones well, and, and the dry, you know, like the plot points, like they're all just very like rooted in 80s mentality and 80s. Yeah. Culture, yeah. you know, we didn't even talk about that. But I mean, this is so this is a throwback. <laughs> we should have said this in the beginning of the episode, but like this is intended to be a reference to like the screwball comedies of the 20s and 30s, the Capra films, the Preston Sturgis films of that era. Yeah. But all of those ended with like, the, the takeaway was like love is more important than money and power and, and social status. This being made right almost in the middle of the eighties. Well, we're right in the middle of the, you know, Reaganomics and the, the Reagan mm -hmm. uh, mentality of money is everything. And that's the takeaway that everything is about getting as much money as possible in this at the end. It's just the winner is, is who has it all. And that's, and that's how you attain happiness. Yeah. That's the other thing that I think is interesting with the casting of it, too, is that and I think this is why I, I was sort of mentioning this before we did this was that, like, I am kind of this Ralph Bellamy fan, but it's because I really like those movies from the 30s. And he's in like The Awful Truth and His Girl Friday and movies like that. Um, he's in a bunch of Carol Lombard movies and they're all that kind of class comedy, but class comedy of the 30s, which they're not exactly like, you know, vilifying anybody it's sort of just like well how is this rich guy getting with this she's just you know a, she just does nails like and it's like those are all of those movies in some way or with like really witty banter and i think that's sort of how bellamy is in this movie because it creates that weird little connection and don amici made a lot of those kind of movies too mm -hmm. um yeah. but like yeah i think that that's like it's a nice way to like build that bridge across to it to make class comedy in the 80s but then with villains you know yeah <laughs> yeah for me, the, the this really brought brought to my mind the importance of of critical reassessment of some of these older films, you know, of a lot of these older films that that 
you know, whether it's the 60s, 70s, 80s, or even 90s that, you know, just because, because in my immediate mind, when I think of trading places, I, my first thought is like, oh, that's fun, the funny Eddie Murphy movie. But it really isn't that anymore, that looking at it now and really seeing what it's doing and, and how, um, you know, it, it's uh, how problematic elements really stand out much more clearly now. Yeah. And it's good to do that for all films. That's part of what we're doing here on the show. So you're serving a valuable purpose. <laughs> um, you know who did like the movie, though? Donna Michi. Donna Michi. Donna Michi. Donna. Donna. Oh, Donna. Donna Michi. <laughs> it really sounds like a lady. Yeah. <laughs> a real lady. All right. Um, it's time to answer the big question Six Degrees of Reconsidimation. Who was able to connect broadcast news to trading places and in how many moves? Uh, I got, got there. Anything? I'm there in it. one. I got it in one. Yeah, one. Okay. I was curious. If you, I, I, that's what I had too. So. I assume we have the same movie because <laughs> we mean, keep talking about we, it this we've whole episode. About it, we've talked about it a uh, bunch. So, yeah. Uh, I, I assume Joe and I at least have the same movie with Twilight Zone. Yes. Yeah. Albert Aykroyd Brooks and Dan Albert Aykroyd Brooks have that scene. Yeah. Right. Ooh, there's that's another right. one too. There's another one one move but uh uh no uh, wait <laughs> no uh i have i have dan Aykroyd and joan cusack from gross point blank Ooh. Yeah. oh okay they're together there you go gross point how about blank. this yeah. how about this robert prosky to dan Aykroyd in the great outdoors there you go Ooh. okay <laughs> I oh, wanted to try course. and get there with Bill Cobbs, but I was like, you know what? It's just too easy with the Twilight Zone, so I'm not yeah. gonna. Because I, I yeah, like yeah. using Bill Cobbs. I think that puts trading places to bed. We are going to move on next episode to a little deeper into our holiday season and our holiday episodes with a '90s romantic comedy classic. While you were sleeping. Oh my God. <laughs> like a we're joke. going there why <laughs> we're going there let's try to get Mer the female audience in guys it's Merry Christmas time. everybody okie dokie <laughs> it's the first movie you think of when you think Christmas but um, uh, when I think of reconsidimation that's what I think of <laughs> like oh they should probably do a Sandy Bullock film on these days yeah, I love a it's Sandy time. Bullock yeah. Pullman, Bullock Come it's on. gotta happen Maybe we can get Gam Gams on and we can talk about Rock Obama. <laughs> I'll Rock see. Obama. Rocco. See if Rocco turns right. up. Vote, vote Obama. <laughs> Joe, where can, where can everybody uh, check out It Happened One Year and your examination of the year 1984? Uh, I think we're available everywhere. Podcasts are available. I think I just got to, Is Google Podcasts going away? Because that was yeah. something. We had a lot of traction from Google Podcasts. But uh, So if you're using that, uh, don't. Uh, I think Stitcher went out of business. So okay. wherever podcasts are still around, uh, we're available everywhere. Me and the wife, uh, we're cranking out episodes, uh, uh, you know, as something to do. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're making our way through 84. And I think we're going to be doing 84 for a while to come. So a lot happened. There's a lot happening in, in 84. Is. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, a happening true. year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. Well, we will be listening, if not participating in some of those episodes. And uh, don't forget to check us out. We're at uh, we're on our social media platforms at Reconsidimation Podcast. Uh, you can check out our archives at reconsidimation.com. Uh, you know what? Give us a five-star rating and a review. It always helps the show, so why not do it? It takes two seconds. 
Uh, thank you to our friends E.K. Wimmer for the theme music, Curtis Moore for the poster, and Joe, thank you for coming on. It is always such a damn pleasure having you on this show. Oh, it was another great one, guys. I, uh, this one this one goes in the vault as just all-time classic. It was my, what <laughs> my, I think it was number seven for me now. Seven. I got to make oh up a shirt. That <laughs> might be a record. You and E.K. Yeah. think you're in competition. Yeah. This is, this is a pretty sweet gig for me. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it feels like it's like your third. Like, right? feel like you're not on enough. Like, yeah. Well, so I'll, welcome. You know, I'm just gonna start, just send me the link and I'll just blast in. And any time you're recording, be like, wait, where are we? Where are we? It's just, oh, we're talking about Sandy Bullock again. Okay. So, is Denholm Elliott in this movie? <laughs> and then just see where we go. So. <laughs> Mr. Wrong with Bill Pullman and Ellen DeGeneres. Okay. Oh, oh my God. wow. Let's Making that a Pullman there. connection. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Donna Michi and I are going to go with the rest of the cocoonies and uh, we're going to check that out. So we'll see Kikuni you guys, Matata, guys. Kikuni next Matata. time ah, on Reconsidimation and happy holidays. Take care. Bye now. No, I know. I'll get it. We can get into it. But this, I think, was what wholly turned me off to this movie when I was a kid. Because I was like, I don't understand anything that's going on at the end of that movie. Yeah. You just ejected it from the VCR and just was like, dropped not it. Not this. You know, I guess the gorilla scene's over, so I'm good. <laughs> I threw it away. Out of the VCR. So. <laughs> I just walked the tape over to a garbage can. Not this. <laughs> nope. I don't need orange juice future stock talk. No thanks. You just so. pull some of the tape <laughs> out. Pull it out. <laughs> You just copy the Jamie Lee tits scenes That's and it. onto another VHS. And you're like, I don't need this fucking movie anymore. <laughs> and I did all no, of this just... in front of my copy of Best Defense. To, so it knew you're next, you son of a bitch. And... <laughs>